Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. In New Hampshire, a meeting about how to attract a diverse workforce took a turn. And as much as we are showing love, there's this showing hate. As much as we are growing, there's this wanting to hold it back. It's America's story what's going on with us. It's the truth. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll hear about how community members are pushing back on efforts to diversify the state. We'll also go to a baseball game in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where fans are mourning their team's move to a city just up the road in another state. There's nothing left here. It's very sad because it was so different when I grew up here. It's just it's very sad to see the direction that, it, that it's gone in. Plus, we hear about heavyweight champion Rocky Marciano's New England roots. And we'll crown another champion, Moose Collar. There we have it. I would say that's an excellent first time try right there. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. The Trump administration estimates there are more than 500 children between the ages of 5 and 17 who were separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border and who still remain in the custody of the U.S. government. In many of these cases, their parents have already been deported back to their home countries. Reporter Shannon Dooling recently went to Central America to report on this story, and she introduces us to two families living in Honduras waiting for the return of their children and depending on help from a complete stranger who lives thousands of miles away in Boston. The Galvez family is sitting down to breakfast, wearing their Sunday best, looking out at the Caribbean Sea. To get where they are in the coastal city of La Ceiba took a four-hour bus ride and $40. They had to borrow the money from a friend. It's basically six months' worth of income. Jose Hector Galvez says he's barely able to keep his family fed, let alone repair the leaky, thatched roof of their home. In fact, it was the prospect of fixing the roof that led to their family being separated. I left because work is impossible to find here. I left so I can help and support my family. That was the motivation for my trip. I never expected this to happen. In May, Galvez and his 16-year-old daughter, Kenya, left for the U.S. The plan was to try and find work for a year or so, save some money, and return to Honduras to repair his home, where his wife and their two other children had stayed behind. After traveling by bus to the U.S.-Mexico border, Galvez explained to U.S. immigration officials that he and his daughter wanted work. He was told he would be deported immediately, and that his daughter would follow in a week or so. He says both he and his daughter were told to take off their belts and their shoelaces. He was placed in a holding cell with other men, while Kenya was kept with women and children. What I was told is that I had to go to immigration court, and they said, Kenya's over there, and you can go talk to her. And I said, okay, I'll go explain to her that I have to go to court. 
But when I come back from court, she'll still be here. I can see her again. And they said, yes, you can. But that's not what happened. When I came back, she wasn't there, and I didn't know where she went. At this point in her husband's story, Rosalina Linder, Kenya's mother, reaches for a washcloth she's brought with her and wipes her eyes. She says they feel hopeless. She's gotten no help from her own government, no help from the U.S. government. As a mother, you feel this intensely. She says she feels physical pain, especially when she speaks to her daughter. She puts her hand on her heart. I feel it here, right here, she says. I worry intensely about her and I pray to God to bring her back safely to me. And she left with her father so that they could work, just so they can fix our little house. And then a few weeks ago, Linder got a phone call from a friend. The friend had seen a news story on television. A phone number flashed on the screen with a message that said, if you have children in U.S. immigration, call this number. And so I called and I said, please send me my daughter. She's the only daughter I have and she needs to be returned to me. It was Isabel Lopez, an immigrant advocate in Boston, who answered that phone call. Isabel Lopez puts her cell phone down on the table. She's sitting in a noisy Dunkin' Donuts in downtown Boston. Lopez is from Honduras and her family still lives there. They told her no one in Honduras was talking about these parents trying to find their children. And so one day I decided to call the TV station to let people know that, you know, that they can call me. And whose number was given? Uh, My number. Lopez says she's spoken with nearly 70 families since she shared her cell phone number on Honduran television back in late July. Since then, she's created a database of names and numbers, families who are looking for their children. She's connecting some of these families with legal experts and buying international calling cards so they can try and track down their children. That's how the Galvezes wound up in La Ceiba, where they met with Boston-based immigration attorneys. And it's painful, too. I cannot imagine having my my kid be taken away from me. And... Like putting my hope in strangers over the phone with the language barrier, with the communication, and their kids calling them and saying, I I don't want to be here. Every day, how can you live? How can you eat? How can you stay stable? Back in Honduras, 33-year-old Carlos Alexis Hernandez Licona has been facing those questions every day for the last three months. He left his hometown of Olancho to look for work in the U.S. He brought with him his six-year-old son, Carlos Gabriel. After traveling with a coyote to Mexico, he and his son shared an inner tube to cross the Rio Grande. He says they eventually walked into McAllen, Texas, and in May presented themselves to immigration officials. 
I was placed in a cage. Eventually I was moved into a bigger cage. ICE officers were near and I confronted them and I said, you're not going to take my son away from me. But they did. His son ran to him. His son said to him, Dad, I want to stay with you. Don't let them take me away. But ICE did take his son away. Lacona says he was there for 14 more days before he was deported back to Honduras. Lacona says ICE never told him where his son was being taken or how long he would be held. He says he's still never been contacted by the U.S. government. So when he saw Isabel Lopez's phone number on television last month, he called right away. She offered him advice and helped him navigate what can be a very complicated immigration system, even for someone who speaks English. But for Lacona, who only speaks Spanish and who cannot read, calling hotlines in the U.S. and finding help with paperwork can feel insurmountable. Lacona eventually learned his son is being held in a facility in New York. He speaks with him once a week. He says his son mostly talks about coming home and asks how much longer he has to wait. Lacona tells him he'll be home soon. In Boston, Lopez is still answering phone calls from mothers and fathers who are looking for their children and putting their hope in a stranger. That's reporter Shannon Dooling from WBUR. She was reporting from El Salvador, but she's back in the U.S. in Boston now, and she joins us. Shannon, welcome back to Next. Thank you, John. Nice to be with you. Since you reported that story, have you heard anything from either family you profiled or from Isabel Lopez? Yeah, I I know that both of those families are currently exploring representation with uh, Boston-based immigration attorneys, actually, through the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Economic Justice. It's a nonprofit in Boston. So those lawyers are, you know, hoping to, to help those families with the process of reunifying with their children. I know Isabel Lopez has also been contacted by a number of people, just, you know, members of the public, members of the community, who want to help her with her work. Um, And she actually started a GoFundMe page to try to be able to gather some resources to be able to help even more families in Honduras. So Shannon, why were you there? Why did you go to Honduras and El Salvador in the first place? We were there with a delegation of Massachusetts elected officials. Uh, We were there with Congressman Jim McGovern and with Joe Curtitoni. He's the mayor of Somerville, Massachusetts. They were heading down there on a fact-finding mission uh, with Boston-based immigrant rights advocates. The goal of of the fact-finding mission was really to get some more information about TPS, which is Temporary Protected Status, and to learn more about the factors that are driving migration from these countries, from Honduras and El Salvador, and the choices that people on the ground there have to make when it comes to whether or not to try to head to the U.S. We heard some of this in your story earlier, but maybe you can tell us about some of the other ways in which you've seen U.S. immigration policies affecting families there in those countries in Central America. 
in Honduras, we met with several families who have been affected by President Trump's now defunct family separation policy. That was a, a major concern for for people in Honduras. Um, also, temporary protected status, which you know is this temporary humanitarian program that for both Honduras and El Salvador is coming to an end. Um, for El Salvador, in September of of 2019, and in 2020 for Honduras, and many many people we spoke with. With both, you know, regular families and individuals, as well as elected officials in those countries, told us that they have real major concerns about what the end of TPS will mean for people having to come back to their country. Many of these people with TPS have been living in the U.S. for almost 20 years. So, you know, they have families here. They've had U.S. citizen children here. They own homes. They own businesses. Uh, so Jim McGovern, the congressman from Massachusetts, actually said that he believes TPS, when these programs come to an end for these two countries, that that will be the next family separation crisis facing the U.S. The TPS program, as you say, was extended to uh, people from these countries because of the very difficult situations there. I'm wondering if you can tell us what you saw in the differences in the conditions between Honduras and El Salvador during your recent trip. We spent a few days in, in each country, more time in El Salvador, actually, than we were able to spend in Honduras. But, you know, the thing that, that struck me first and foremost in Honduras was the just extreme abject poverty in that country. We met with families who were living off of 20 to $40 a month, and it was a very erratic, unpredictable income at that. And so many, many concerns about extreme poverty in Honduras. Um, Honduras also has the highest rate, or one of the highest rates, I should say, of femicide in the world, which is targeted violence and murder of women. Domestic violence is, is a major problem in Honduras and, and a, you know, also a, a motivating driving factor for, for women and children to, to leave Honduras. In El Salvador, you go across the border to El Salvador and it's a much smaller country. It's actually similar in size geographically to Massachusetts, and yet you have 6 million people living there. And so when you're talking about, you know, it's also an extremely impoverished nation, but when you're talking about uh, violence, whether it be gang violence or, you know, other types of targeted violence in El Salvador, it's, it's really difficult to relocate anywhere internally within that country and feel safe because it's just so small. So when we were talking with folks about, you know, why they have family in the U.S. or why they've considered making the trek up to the U.S., many of them were talking about the fact that it is just so dangerous there. They feel very unsafe. And it, they also, you know, f- feel like they have no opportunities, no opportunities for jobs and no opportunities to make a real life there. Shannon, we've talked about this on the program before. I'm wondering if you could remind our audience about the numbers of Salvadoran and Honduran immigrants who live in our region, the total numbers of people who are connected to these two countries. Well, yeah, we have talked a lot about this. We have really vibrant communities um, of Hondurans and Salvadorans living in in New England. Most of the families have, you know, found their way to Massachusetts and Connecticut. It's difficult to get a clear picture of the numbers because, uh, you know, some of them are here without actual documentation, and so that's that's a difficult thing to to tally, really. But when it comes to TPS, this temporary protected status, we know that the latest estimates put around 7,000, 8,000 people in the region, you know, anywhere upwards of, of 8,000 or 9,000 at, at the, the sort of largest 
estimates of, of people from Honduras and El Salvador who are living in the region with temporary protected status. And, and as I mentioned, these are people who many of them have been here for, you know, 20 years. And so they're embedded in the community, they're neighbors, they're, you know, they work in city government, they work at schools, they have work authorization, um, they own businesses. So to sort of unplug that many people from these communities after that much time, um, that will have a really big impact, not only here in New England, but, you know, if we're talking nationwide, there are upwards of 250,000 people in the whole country and in the entire U.S. that have this TPS status. And so, you know, those two countries, it will be very, very hard-pressed to absorb that many people back into their economy, back into their society. Shannon Dooling is an immigration reporter for WBUR and the New England News Collaborative. She just returned from Honduras and El Salvador, where she reported on the effects that U.S. immigration policies are having on individuals in those countries. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, John. Coming up, a forum on diversity in New Hampshire faces a backlash. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. New Hampshire is nearly 94% white. It's a demographic fact shared by its other northern New England neighbors. A group of New Hampshire leaders from the private and public sectors met recently to talk about this and to discuss how to attract a more diverse workforce to the state. But since that conference, some attendees have received hate mail and threats. NHPR's Robert Garova reports on how this discussion of diversity has prompted criticism of diversity itself, both in New Hampshire and beyond. It was an energetic group of folks, all sitting around circular tables in a conference room in Manchester. Organizers told me they were pleased with the large turnout. Will Arvello, director of New Hampshire's Department of Economic Development, was one of several who led the event, and he laid out the group's goals. We must collectively create a welcoming and supportive environment. We must also ensure that diversity is inclusive of not just race and ethnicity and gender differences, but of people of diverse religious beliefs, those with disabilities, those with an addiction recovery, veterans, older workers, and the formerly incarcerated. The message at the conference was clear. With very low unemployment and an aging workforce, New Hampshire needs to do everything it can to bring more people of all backgrounds into the state and create an inclusive atmosphere that will keep them here. Eversource, the state's largest energy company, hosted the event. Major employers, including Eastern Bank, the University System of New Hampshire, and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare sent attendees. I left that event and we were so pumped. Jerry Ann Bogus is executive director of the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire, a nonprofit that seeks to share the state's African American history. We were so excited that, wow, we're talking on a full, rounded, inclusive dialogue. People who are really interested in this, and it's not changing the state, but growing. But once the conference was over, that dialogue took an unexpected turn. National coverage, including a New York Times article with the headline, New Hampshire, 94% white, asks, how do you diversify a whole state, drew a lot of attention to the conference, much of it critical of the notion of racial and ethnic diversity. Well, New Hampshire is a pretty remarkable Here's how Tucker Carlson responded to the Times story on his Fox News show. According to the New York Times, Americans have an obligation to change their culture to suit foreigners and not the other way around. 
But more than anything, the paper says, the state must become less white quickly, like the rest of the country. Its current demographics are an outrage. A group of self- There was local pushback as well. A few days after the conference, the union leader ran an editorial which said the efforts to diversify the state should be, quote, watched closely and pondered the effects of, quote, changing New Hampshire's culture and values. Meanwhile, the spokesman for the New Hampshire Department of Education weighed in on social media, writing, quote, we don't want or need New Hampshire to become any kind of cesspool, adding, quote, diversity for diversity's sake doesn't bring us anything. What's more, several attendees from the meeting have received personal threats. Bogus, who said she had left the meeting excited for what was to come, picked up the phone and heard this from an unknown woman. That, um... I'm trying to kill her white children, and she will kill mine before. <laughs> then she said that, that white people are 74% of the country, and they have more guns than us. So if it's a race war you're having, you're going to lose because we will kill you. Dale Moano, a motivational speaker and community activist, also received threats after the meeting, including an email saying his efforts were not welcome in the state and, quote, the common person there will not be kind to you in finding out what you were doing. Moano says he sees the backlash as another sign of why this conversation needs to happen. And it's also important to see we need those business leaders that were involved in this a conference to, to speak up you know, to advocate. And I know a lot of times when stuff like this happens, it intimidates folks. One of the organizations represented at the conference was the New Hampshire Automobile Dealers Association. Peter McNamara, president of that group, attended. It's the beginning of a dialogue, and I can only hope that that people, you know, continue to have the discussion uh, rather than react to any sort of single meeting. NHPR reached out to many of the other businesses represented at the conference, but most either did not return our calls or declined a request for an interview, including Eversource, the host of the event. Still, several people involved with the meeting stressed that it was, at its core, an economic development conference. Rogers Johnson is president of the Seacoast NAACP and the chair of the Governor's Council on Diversity and Inclusion. He was a featured speaker at the meeting and says the uproar that has resulted is missing the point. There's an economic purpose behind everything that we're trying to do. It gets lost in, oh, this is white versus black, this is affirmative action. No, it's economics. But Johnson also said the reaction to the conference illustrates the difficulty Americans have whenever conversations even touch on racial issues. They're all looking at it from one point of view. We are so myopic. We are, we've got the blinders on. All we look at all the time in this country is race. Everything. Jerry Ann Bogus of the Black Heritage Trail tells me it was a week of contrast for her. Around the same time she received that hateful phone call, her group bought a property for its new headquarters in Portsmouth, a building that was once home to enslaved people. Bringing all the ancestors' story together in a place that we could tell and creating that, hey, black people have always been here, to go to this, black people, we don't want you here, <laughs> you know. So as much as we have this coming to make it visible, then there's this trying to make it invisible. You know, as much as we are showing love, there's this showing hate. As much as we are growing, there's this wanting to hold it back. It's America's story what's going on with us. It's the truth. Bogus and other attendees I spoke with say that, while some of the backlash to their meeting has been deeply disheartening, they won't let it silence the work they're doing. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robert Garova. Almost exactly one year ago, we were talking about this issue on our show. A young biracial boy was hanged in a lynching-style attack in Claremont, New Hampshire. He survived, but the incident received widespread attention. 
NHPR's Brita Green had traveled to a diner in the town shortly after the attack to hear local reactions, including this one from Deborah Kirby. Brita asked Kirby about whether she saw racism in the town. Then there are people that are like so-called, I don't know, skinheads or what, supremacists, whatever. And um, you'll see swastika tattoos and stuff. Yeah, and I don't even see them really bothering anybody. I think because we're not inner city, we're still out in the boonies, kind of. So in this area, I don't find that racism is a problem. But just how prevalent is organized violent extremism in our region? An analysis by the Southern Poverty Law Center shows 33 organizations they consider to be hate groups in New England. We spoke with Jack McDevitt. He's the director of the Institute on Race and Justice at Northeastern University and the co-author of two books on hate crimes. Jack, welcome to Next. It's my pleasure, John. Could you start by defining what a hate group is? Sure. Let's start with hate crimes. Hate crimes are uh, criminal acts that are motivated entirely or in part by a person's difference. To break that down, it's simple. It's a, it, we're not talking about hate speech here. We're talking about crimes, and they're motivated by some perceived or actual difference that people have. Hate groups are groups that stand for an ideology that one group is inherently better or more well-developed, depending on the group's ideology, than another, and that certain groups shouldn't be allowed to be in cities, colleges, or communities with other individuals. So break down that difference between hate crimes and hate speech, what what someone does versus what someone says or thinks. Sure. We have free speech laws in this country, as we all know, and people can say pretty outrageous things, and that's protected speech. We don't try to govern that. When the speech turns to action, or even if the speech is such that it might incite action, then those are not protected anymore, and the individual can be prosecuted. So, for example, if somebody says all the members of this group are bad and we don't like them in our community, that's fine. That's going to be protected free speech. If they say, but we should get together and drive them out of the community because that will make our lives better, then they've crossed the line and they've gone into a threat. And particularly if they name an individual, that threat then can be actionable. We wanted to talk about organized hate groups, but I guess I'm wondering if you see a big distinction between the types of hate crimes that are perpetrated by people who are part of organized hate groups and those who act individually. In in essence, I'm asking, is hate something that comes from a group activity or mentality, or is it something that tends to come from individual actors? I think it is something that comes from individual actors. In the research that we've done and others have done, We see that the number of hate crimes that are perpetrated by organized hate groups is very small. Generally, less than 10% of all hate crimes in a community are perpetrated by members of hate groups. That being said, those are sometimes the most dangerous, most violent crimes are the ones that hate groups are involved with. And they also serve as a place where individuals get the ideas to go out and commit hate crimes. A lot of groups have now become more sophisticated And they say to people, we don't advocate violence, but if this group wasn't here, your life would be a whole lot better, and here are the reasons why. And they hope that individuals go out and act on their own, and that reduces their legal liability, but it increases their dangerousness in a community because they're advocating violence for other people. One example of this is Timothy McVeigh, who blew up the Mural Federal Building in Oklahoma City, 
and killed all those individuals. He had been not a member, but had attended hate group meetings and got the ideas for blowing up the federal building from those meetings. So that's their idea, is trying to get others to do the violence on their behalf. That has obviously changed quite a bit since Timothy McVeigh did that, in that if you wanted to organize as part of a hate group when Timothy McVeigh was alive and active, you would probably have to meet up with other people or correspond by mail or by telephone. Now it's probably harder to pin down exactly where the center of a hate group is. Can you talk more about that? Sure. It's a really important question. The world has changed around that with the Internet. And whereas, as you suggest, Timothy McVeigh had to find people that could tell him where a meeting was and then get himself to the meeting and listen to what people were saying at the meeting. Now all it takes is a couple of clicks of a mouse. We have thousands of hate sites on the Internet that people can easily find. They can go on there and they can find people who share their fears, their biases, their prejudice. And so it's much easier for people to feel like this is something that lots and lots of people share. And it isn't that, but the Internet makes them feel that way. What can you tell us about hate groups that are active right now in New England? How many are there, and and where exactly are they? It's really hard to tell the exact number. The Southern Poverty Law Center does the best job of anybody keeping track of these groups around the country. They think of there's 12 in Massachusetts, for example, and there's a few more in New Hampshire. They tend to be neo-Nazi groups, and they tend to be skinhead groups, and mostly are are anti-race or anti-Semitic. But it's interesting to the question is important because a lot of us in Massachusetts, a lot of us around New England, think of ourselves as, well, we'd never, that's something that happens in the South or maybe in the Midwest with the militias, but it would never happen here. And it happens throughout Massachusetts, and there are small groups throughout, and they can come together quickly and they disband quickly. They're hard for police to monitor because they don't, they don't have a long-term presence. They can be one person who decides to have a get a group together, they protest a particular movement or a speech or something like that, and then they sort of fall apart. And so it's, it's, it's hard to know exactly how many we have, but we do have them here in Massachusetts and throughout New England. Is there something different about how hate groups organize in New England than, than in other parts of the country? Is, is part of the stereotype that people might have correct in terms of the ways in which hate groups are visible within a community? I think that there's less social acceptance in certain areas of New England, not the whole region, but in certain areas, there's less social acceptance, so groups tend to be more underground. Other places, there's a little bit more acceptance that these people are just different than us, but they're okay. So there's a little bit more attempt to to be, you know, it's interesting in the skinhead culture, they call it growing out. You grow your hair out so you can pass and no one will know that you're a skinhead. And I think there's more of that in New England makes it a little bit harder for law enforcement to track these groups and a little bit harder for people to understand, you know, what they're doing. Jack McDevitt is director of the Institute on Race and Justice at Northeastern University in Boston. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. I enjoyed talking with you. Coming up, farewell, Paw Sox. Welcome, Woo Sox. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. The Pawtucket Red Sox, the AAA farm team of the Boston Red Sox, appear ready to move about an hour up the road to Worcester, where a new stadium is scheduled to be built by 2021. 
The minor league baseball team announced the deal on August 17th after failing to reach an agreement with Rhode Island officials. One of the reasons Rhode Island didn't want to pony up the $100 million or so needed to keep the Paw Sox in town? Well, the bad feelings left over from the failed 38 Studios deal when former Red Sox pitcher Kurt Schilling's video game company flopped, leaving taxpayers on the hook for a lot of money. And in Worcester, amid the excitement, there are still some of the same concerns about just how much it'll cost the city. Here's Tracy O'Connell Novick speaking at a meeting of the Worcester City Council. Basically, we pay for everything except for the uniforms. I'm all for public bonding if it's actually for a public good. This is not. But alas, when it comes to sports, emotions sometimes plays a bigger role than economics. And fans in Pawtucket are taking the news of the move hard, as Rhode Island Public Radio's John Bender found out. Devastated. Just devastated. That's how Seekonk resident Kelly Adams put it. She spent her childhood in Pawtucket with trips to McCoy Stadium, a regular family ritual. And my father started taking my sisters and sisters and I here in like 73, 74. And we've been coming here ever since. I take my daughters here now. I've spent so much of my life here. Adams came to catch a home game between the Sox and the Durham Bulls out of North Carolina. But on this summer evening, a pall hangs over the stadium. After decades here at McCoy, the team has announced plans to move to a new stadium in Worcester in 2021. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself after 2020 because we come here from the first weekend that they open and we'll be here till the last game of the year and I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I'll have to find a hobby or something. Of course, Adams could go to Worcester, but for some diehard fans, that's not such an appealing option. Bob and Carrie Spur bring their two boys to McCoy about a dozen times a year. Bob Spur says they won't be following the team to Massachusetts. I'll go check it out so I can say I've done that one, but this is where the Paw Sox are to us. Carrie Spur says living in Raynham, the drive to Worcester would be too inconvenient. Worcester for us is an hour away. So even though we live in Massachusetts, but this is where we want to come. You know, this is home. This is where they belong. It's where we belong. This feels like home to us. And fans like Bob Spur are quick to express displeasure with Rhode Island leaders who they say let the team slip through their fingers. Rhode Island messed up. This was Rhode Island's to lose, and, and I think they lost it. Mass gave him a great offer from what we can tell, but Rhode Island could have made him a good offer too. Rhode Island offered the team $38 million in state and city funding to help build a new stadium in downtown Pawtucket, but the deal took time to get through Rhode Island's General Assembly, and lawmakers in the House added costs that the team didn't agree to. Mike Mack of North Providence lays the blame for the deal's collapse at Governor Gina Raimondo's feet. And I understand that it's not all her fault. She actually she had a deal on the table already, but at the end of the day, it's her state. It's on her watch. She couldn't make a deal with the speaker. They couldn't get it together. And while they're sitting playing games, look what happened. What happened is that Worcester worked for the last year to woo the Paw Sox. They offered more than $100 million to build a new stadium, plus $35 million in state funding for infrastructure like parking and improving public transit. Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo says she's disappointed the General Assembly didn't act quicker on her proposal. Inside Pawtucket's modern diner, lifelong resident Jim Douglas says other Rhode Islanders didn't understand the importance of the stadium for Pawtucket. Some of it might be the public in general uh, that are afraid of how their taxes go up and don't give a damn about the Pawtucket Red Sox and think that the people that own it should have paid the, the money and I think that's what's probably caused the problem. 
At 84 years old, Douglas remembers when the Pawtucket Slaters played at McCoy in the 1940s. At the time, the city was a thriving manufacturing hub. Now, after decades of decline, Douglas hoped a new stadium could turn the city around. Well, I think if, uh, if Pawtucket loses the Paw Sox, I think it's a big loss for Pawtucket. And I thought it was a possibility of resurrecting the city if they put the deal through and, and moved it to the apex area and build a hotel. And I, I think it would have revitalized the city of Pawtucket. I really do. Now those hopes seem more unlikely than ever. The baseball team's announcement of a deal to move to Worcester comes after several other setbacks, including the closing of Memorial Hospital, a major provider of jobs in the area. For former resident Kelly Adams, the Paw Sox were a lasting vestige of a childhood hometown fast disappearing. There's, there's nothing left here. It's very sad because it was so different when I grew up here. I don't, it's just, it's very sad to see the direction that, it, that it's gone in and that it's going to continue to go in once they leave here in a few years. The future for McCoy Stadium remains unknown for now. In a statement following the announcement of the team's decision to leave, Mayor Donald Grebian said, quote, the Paw Sox do not make Pawtucket and the city will move forward to a brighter future. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Bender in Rhode Island. To read another Rhode Island fan's lament about losing the beloved Paw Sox, you can go to our website, nextnewengland.org. The writer of that piece is Mike Stanton. He spent a career chronicling the world of sports and organized crime. His latest book is about the man known by many as the greatest heavyweight champion of all time and one of New England's sports legends. Rocky Marciano was born Rocco Marchigiano. He grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts. His first professional fight was in Holyoke, and most of his professional fights were in Providence, Rhode Island. Mike Stanton is a journalism professor at the University of Connecticut, and his new book is called Unbeaten, Rocky Marciano's Fight for Perfection in a Crooked World. I asked him about Rocky's childhood growing up in Brockton. He was the oldest son in a family of six children, so there was a lot of responsibility ascribed to him. He loved sports. He had a fairly idyllic childhood. You know, he was a Depression child. He, he was born in the, in the 1920s, came of age in the 1930s. There was a lot of anti-Italian prejudice in the 1920s in America and in Massachusetts. This was the age of the uh, Sacco and Vanzetti, who were arrested on the Brockton trolley near Rocky's house. There were immigration bills passed in Congress to shut the doors to Italian immigrants who were branded as a race of pickpockets who should all be fingerprinted and rounded up. Mm -hmm. So he came of age in that environment. But within the confines of Brockton, there was a very vibrant Italian community uh, that he came of age in. His grandfather was a, a leader in the community, um, you know, would grow grapes and have raucous uh, drinking and eating parties at his house. And uh, the kids would hang out together. They would play sports. And he played baseball and whatever sport was in season, was outdoors all the time. In some ways, it was a very idyllic childhood. And kids would get into fist fights back then over disagreements. But then they would blow over like a summer storm. Hmm. How did he become a boxer? How did he How did he make that his trade? Well, boxing, and this was what really drew me to the story, is it's really part of the fabric of America in the early to mid-1900s. And, you know, kids would box in backyards. You know, every little city would have its fight club and fight night. And, uh, you know, guys that worked in the factories would fight and their families and friends would go see them fight. And a lot of them were not, you know, uh, dreaming of glory. They were just trying to get an extra paycheck and do something uh, after hours. So Rocky came up, came of age in that environment. 
He was a strong kid. He wasn't particularly motivated in school. He dropped out of high school. His first love was baseball. He could slug the ball a mile. And he had a tryout with the Chicago Cubs, and he washed out. And so boxing became his only alternative to avoiding the life in the shoe factories that he dreaded after seeing what his father endured. Mm. Boxing at this point in American history, to many people, is, is a fringe sport. It doesn't have the same kind of following it used to have. You've hinted at this a little bit, Mike, but maybe you can take us back to that time and explain the hold that boxing had on the communities, not just that Rocky grew up in, but all across mm-hmm. America. Boxing was a very important thing, and it drew an awful lot of different sorts of characters to the crowds. It did, John. Boxing was really, it was a place that immigrants would assimilate. It was a place that they could identify with their champions. It was a place for individuality in an increasingly impersonal age of factories and cities and industrialism. And there were all these ethnic rivalries that would, you know, be like, you know, Shakespearean plays that would play out in the ring. And you'd go to these smoky arenas in these small New England working-class cities, you know, Haverhill and Nashua and Portland and Holyoke and Lowell and, of course, Brockton and then Providence. And people would be, from all walks of life, would be there. You'd have the Irish foremen and the Italian workers. You'd have the, uh, the owners of the factories, the policemen, the lawyers, the mobsters, There'd be betting going on in the background. There'd be all kinds of unsavory insinuations about fixed fights, especially in Providence, which was the mafia capital of New England. Well, tell us more about that. Because the mafia controlled so much of the boxing world, explain how it affected matches that Rocky was was part of and also went on around him. I mean, this was this was a controlling influence on the entire sport. Well, there's different levels of it. When you get to the the smaller level, these little working class cities in New England. It was more that the mob, the mob was there. There was a lot of gambling. People would bet on anything, not just the winners and the losers, but, you know, what round would a knockout occur? And, you know, in Providence, uh, Raymond Patriarca was the up-and-coming mob boss of New England, and he would l- kind of hang out in the back of the old Rhode Island Auditorium with the bookies, and uh, there'd be action on everything. And so there would be suspicions of fixed fights and that, you know, a fighter was kind of told that you need to lose because certain fighters were, you know, on the uh, upswing and other fighters were just kind of cannon fodder. One of the things that you, you mentioned earlier was the the diversity in terms of race and ethnicity that was happening not only in Providence at the time, but in all these mill towns, people who'd who'd come from all over the world. And many of these these rivalries made their way into the boxing ring. We hear about a a Holocaust survivor that Rocky fought, about uh, a member of the Army's first African-American paratrooper unit mm-hmm. that, that he fought. So this is really a wide cross-section of America that made its way into the ring with Rocky. How much did race play a part in his story? He's an Italian-American immigrant, but he's fighting these people from, from all of these other backgrounds as well. Was race a big part of his story? Yeah, race and ethnicity are really big parts because boxing is a prism into, into the story of immigration because it's the people who come here who are on the bottom rungs trying to climb the ladder to success, to the American dream. And so what you see going back to the, the dawn of the 20th century uh, when boxing is semi-legal, you've got the Jewish fighters in the tenements, you know, battling their way out. You've got then the Irish fighters, then you've got the Italian fighters. And then you have the black fighters and the Latino fighters coming along. And so it's this great melting pot in the circled square. Aside from those ethnic rivalries, what I found with Rocky was there was a surprising amount of tolerance 
about people who are different. There was no racial animosity, and he respected the black fighters who he fought. He was, in 1952, when he became the champion, the first white champion since Joe Lewis had knocked out James Braddock back in 1937. So it had been about 15 years. And so there was this kind of subtle great white hope mantle that was placed on him, but it was not one that he was ever comfortable with. He really did identify with the black fighters that he faced in the ring. You know, great unrated fighters like Ezra Charles, Jersey Joe Walcott, Archie Moore. And of course, he had a tremendous uh, respect for Joe Lewis, um, his boyhood idol, who he knocked out uh, through the ropes in Madison Square Garden to end Lewis's career and propel his own. Of all the stories that you combed through when you were writing this book, what are some of your favorites? Well, it was really kind of a a journey of self-discovery for me. I grew up in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, a mill town on the Connecticut River. Uh, My father uh, grew up in Ware, Massachusetts, a mill town. His father was a janitor. My father was one of the first in his family to go to college on the GI Bill. And he went to college in Providence. And he was there when Rocky was fighting. And he went to some of his fights, and he passed away about 16 years ago. And I I went through his things, and I found among them an autographed poster of Rocky Marciano. So I like to think that this this book is for all those little towns and all those little fighters that never got out. When you get to understand the real life of someone like Rocky Marciano or, or Joe Lewis, for instance, these are names that take on this almost heroic quality. And you can imagine stories being told that are, are true, but are maybe <laughs> uh, a little bit embellished over time. Is knowing about the real Rocky Marciano make him bigger to you than just hearing the stories that people have told over time, which maybe were a little bit inflated? They do, because... Again, this goes back to how huge boxing was in our culture back then. It was as big as baseball. And if you were the heavyweight champion, everybody knew your name. Today, most people probably couldn't name the heavyweight champion of the world. But back then, Rocky was known by presidents, movie stars, politicians. And he never lost that New England identity. He never lost that Brockton identity. And there's all these wonderful stories about the the people in Brockton would, you know, take the money out of their coffee tins and bet on his fights. And then they would take the winnings and roll them over into the next fight and the next fight. And they would buy refrigerators and cars and houses. And one time when he was a champion, a writer went to Brockton and talked to a taxi driver who talked about this elderly Italian couple. Before every fight Rocky had, uh, the taxi driver would drive them to the loan office where they would borrow money so that they could bet on The Rock. And Rocky, who was the Brockton blockbuster, he wore the colors of his high school, black and red, into the ring, said that for them, you know, I could never let the people of Brockton down. For them, I always knew that I would get up. Hmm. The book is Unbeaten, Rocky Marciano's Fight for Perfection in a Crooked World, and the author is Mike Stanton. He joined us in studio today. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. It was fun. Every year, the North Country Chamber of Commerce holds a moose festival in Colebrook, New Hampshire. It's right on the border with Vermont. The 27th annual festival is held this weekend. Now, last year, Chris Jensen visited, and he listened in on one of the festival's highlights. It's the moose calling competition. It was honestly just too much fun not to play for you again. If you want to summon a bull moose, there are two calls you should send out into the forest, says Roger Irwin. He knows. For 15 years... He's been imitating the come-hither sounds of the September and October mating season as part of his wildlife photography business. There's the siren call of the cow in heat. And the sharp grunting of a bull 
which triggers a confrontational territorial spirit. Oh. 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 But before giving it a try, remember the old saying about being careful what you ask for. A bull moose can easily weigh 1,000 pounds, and it can run as quickly as a horse. Plus, Irwin says it arrives with, well, great expectations. They just usually just look at you a while. And Irwin says their eyesight's poor, so they could mistake you for a competitor. He remembers ever so clearly how once it all went wrong. He came in and he stood there for about five minutes, kept laying his ears back, and I knew I was in trouble. And I didn't have any trees to climb. I was in a bog. It looked like Irwin's obit would prominently mention moose. And so I backed up about 10 feet, and I turned my back to him. Thought maybe that wouldn't hurt as bad. And uh, he put his head down and charged me. It took him about three seconds. And I was watching him over my shoulder, and he went by me on the right. Irwin figures the bull caught a whiff of human and swerved. Some moose callers are hunters. Others just want a close look. There were some of each at the Moose Festival competition. We're going to start the moose calling contest shortly. Get ready to bring down the moose. That's Steve Bissonette of Whitefield. He is the master of moose ceremonies. There were 10 competitors. Among them was Kevin Hodnett of Arrow. Okay, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. First time. First time moose caller? Yeah. Okay. There we have it. I would say that's an excellent first time try right there. Another was Karen Blodgett of Claremont, New Hampshire. I've even got a moose tattoo. She's got a moose tattoo and she's been practicing. I think this is the one. Are we ready? <laughs> There was more grunting and moaning, and finally the big announcement. And our number one, 2017, Moose Calling Champion of the entire world, or at least Canaan, Vermont, Kevin Hodnett. Oh, I can't believe it. That's Chris Jensen reporting. You can find more information about the North Country Moose Festival on nextnewengland.org. The producer of Next is Lily Tyson. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. And it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.